On behalf of the Polly's Vague Theories podcast team and our guests and everyone involved, I want to acknowledge we are recording on Lutruwita, home of the many mobs of Tasmanian Aboriginal people. Their stories have been transmitted for over 65,000 years and we pay our respects to their elders and their ancestors. I also extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening and acknowledge your ongoing connection to land, sea and sky. I also acknowledge that connection is unbroken and that sovereignty was never ceded and the ongoing trauma experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, their culture and communities from the aftermath of colonisation. Always was, always will be. Do you remember that song, I Fought the Law and the Law Won? Today on the podcast, we are talking to Simon Gates, a barrister with special interests in public law and personal injury law, particularly workers' compensation and psychological injury. Simon and I are looking at who protects lawyers from trauma when so many of them across all different areas of the law are really affected by the cases they do, the conversations they have with clients, the material they have to review. And we look at how trauma is processed in an industry where you have to maintain secrecy at all times. It's a complex area and Simon is totally across it, as well as having a real love for the language of trauma and well-being of lawyers. He's the head of the Tasmania Law Society's well-being committee and he really is invested in making sure that lawyers are able to go to work well and come home well. We have a fascinating conversation and I cannot wait for you to get into it with us. Simon, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I've just been looking forward to this ever since we did our podcast together. But I guess what I'm really interested in starting with is, is how do you intersect with trauma? I mean, this is a podcast all about trauma, but I want to know where does the law and Simon and trauma come together so we get kind of a bit of a context for you? Yeah, thanks, Polly. Look, I'm yeah really excited to be here with you too. Um, look, um, it's an interesting question. I think it's fair to say I, like a lot of people, have experienced trauma in my past and, you know, both small T and big T trauma, I think is how you'd refer to it. Um, you know, I um, experienced some big T trauma when I lived and worked uh, during a period of civil unrest in Timor-Leste. Wow. Um, and, yeah, and I had some exposure to some risky and th- life-threatening situations there, which I won't go into, but... Um, yeah, so, you know, I think that gave me um, some first-hand experience of that type of thing. I think another interesting part for me about my time in Timor is I also ended up um, in a situation where I was exposed to what I'd call a probably a chronic state of fight or fight for, say, six months when the country mm-hmm. was in, in civil unrest. So I also got to experience, um, and I suppose I'm a person who does a lot of self-reflection, I got to got to kind of look at what that does, you know, and, and being in that constant state of uh, alertness and awareness and, and feeling of risk. And so these these experiences gave me an understanding and insight, I suppose, of what these kinds of experiences uh, have on someone's vagal tone, I suppose you'd say, and, you know, how ratcheted up your, um, your, your uh, sympathetic nervous system can get and how readily it can become ratcheted up. Um, 
and and I think they, those experiences also caused me to undergo a bit of a paradigm shift. Um, so uh, having when I'd returned to Australia, I suppose I, I I didn't see the world as quite as safe and innocent a place as I did when I left. So you know there, there was a lot of changes there. Um, and that's I think, really fascinating to me. I mean, can I just acknowledge the fantastic use of stress and trauma-based language. I feel like I've raised you as my own and released you into the world and look at you with your vagal toning and your sympathetic yeah. nervous system. But it's well, it's your fault, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a bit more while we're here about the feeling of, of, I mean, what we probably call toxic stress on the body because that is exactly that experience of six months where your system doesn't ever get a chance. Your nervous system doesn't get a chance to, to ever get back into regulation. What did you notice it did to your body and your mind as you were experiencing it and as you came out of it and were in, in theoretically back in Australia in a safe place but weren't able to sort of bring it back? Yeah, Um Look, I think I was, I'm still trying to make sense of a lot of those things. But uh, I, I can tell you one thing that was obvious was that I would, during that period, I would only sleep four or five hours a night um, because I, I think my body was just in a, a different uh, mode, if you like. And so, um, and that was obviously must have been having coming at some health cost to me during that time. But, you know, that's how my body reacted. Um, yeah, I mean, you obviously I was hyper vigilant you know you're always looking and I needed to be over there too um so it was a, it was actually a proportional response to the situation I was in um so I was hyper vigilant always looking for risk um uh, and danger but as you would know when you re-enter Australia and in a, in a time when it's um, relatively safe and secure it can be hard and I found it hard to switch that hyper vigilance off um, because I was so used to it, so it took it took time, and and it actually took effort um, and understanding and self awareness to realise what was happening and to to develop techniques about how to um, you know switch myself back into a more dominant um, parasympathetic mode more readily, and and I've got better and better at that to the point where it's now really not really a, a, a any great. Uh, issue for me but um that that took a lot of time and effort and i think the awareness was key in relation to that yeah i think another thing i might just add to that which is interesting is i think when i've heard this described better by by other people recently i can't think of how it was described but basically when when you're living in a situation where it is life and death a lot of the time life when you come back to Australia and it's calm can seem pretty boring and bland because you're so used to what what's a what's a, a big event in your day is you know you know trying to stay alive for example and so that could, takes a lot of adjustment for that reason too I remember someone joking to me when I was complaining about you know how I was feeling you know in the months after I got back to Hobart where I was living at the time saying well why don't you just start crossing the road with your eyes closed or something if you f need to feel that kind of danger it's like oh yeah thanks that's really helpful I don't really think that's <laughs> that's the answer yeah so yeah it, it it it's uh it is an interesting phenomenon it's a paradox though isn't it that, that and I, I know Dean Yates talked about this in our podcast as well it's it's that sort of almost they talk about adrenaline junkies but it is that sense that the body gets so used to that constant spiking of adrenaline 
then everything else just does feel a little bit grey after that. So you can see where people then just start to orient themselves into situations that are going to bring that response and go back into war zones or go into professions where they're going to be able to be in the homeostasis. You know, you've spent so much time that your system's kind of recalibrated to this is what it feels like as normal. And it wants to stay. I mean, our systems are designed for homeostasis. So it's it's interesting, but it's also it's hard to it's hard to have empathy, isn't it, from the comments that your your colleague or your friend made because and the normal rational brain's like, are you nuts? It's so great to be safe. But the body's <laughs> like, oh come on, you got more than this. So it's it's hard to understand the lived experience, I think, and that's the problem for a lot of people who have been in frontline situations or in long protracted periods of toxic stress that you know, there isn't the understanding. You can't really talk about how you feel because you'll get comments like the one you got. So you tend to either hang out with people who all want to be on the adrenaline with you or you suppress it. Yeah, I, that's right. And that certainly was my experience. And I think there's two two sides to sharing your experience when with people that haven't been through that. Is One is that often you, you, you feel like they're not really getting it. And so it's not, it's not a... Um, you know, it's not a helpful experience for you, but also, you know, uh, you worry about the impact that the things you're sharing are having on people who aren't kind of ready for that, you know, what you're talking about. So I learned over time to dial all that right down or not talk about it at all, because I, even though it was something that I was used to think of, thinking about and talking about with people when I was living in Timor all the time, I realised when I kept doing that when I got back that that just wasn't, wasn't something that people we're ready for or you know and nor should they be you know I mean and so it took me a while to to get that into my head. What's such an interesting observation too because I, I do often note with people that have been through quite a lot of trauma sometimes the disclosure I'm thinking that is a lot for you to be sharing with people just out in the world I mean not a lot if you were sharing in therapy but when you're just having a chat at the pub or I saw a guy doing a presentation to a whole lot of students who'd who'd been in a hostage situation and it was very graphic and I I was kind of clutching my pearls and thinking uh, this is really this is not good but he was right into it and it was really could really say he was so enjoying the retelling of the story but had kind of misaligned the call of that with the audience but you know what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that there's also a real isolation because you're disconnected. You're trying to tell your story, but you're disconnected with humans. There's that sense that, oh, we're not really ready for this. So you feel further isolated, which if you're already all jacked up in your sympathetic nervous system, you've already moved into that isolated fight or flight kind of space, which you can see where it really leads to lots of mental health issues with people who just don't have anyone who gets what's happening for them. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, of course, you came back to go straight into the cut and thrust life and death world of the law. And as you know, I have a I have a mild theory, all these mild theories, that often a lot of people that are attracted to the law actually function really well in highly aggressive, quite combative situations, which makes me think that there's a lot of lawyers who who probably are bringing their fair share of small T and big T lived experience and able to then recreate that in their daily life. But I don't ever really hear law talked about a lot as a as a profession where there's a lot of trauma. I mean, more so, and I know that on your podcast, you were recently talking to a lawyer who'd written a book about vicarious trauma. But what happens behind what we see in the law profession? Where Are you seeing it changing? I'd love to get your thoughts on, on lawyers and trauma. Oh, 
Yeah, look, first of all, I agree that I think we have been, as a profession, pretty slow to recognise or talk about trauma in the practice of law. And, 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 and in that, I mean both vicarious trauma and exposure to traumatic material directly. Um, um, and I think it's fair to say that probably most lawyers are exposed to a lot of trauma through their work. Not all of them, but uh, in a, it's probably um, comes up in a, a broader number of areas of practice than a lot of people would probably superficially or, or initially uh, think of. So, I mean, there's obvious examples, for example, like um, criminal lawyers are obviously frequently um, um, exposed to uh, vicarious trauma and traumatic um, material. Um, family lawyers, um, you know, quite traumatic circumstances and material, child, child protection lawyers. But I think that um, I mean, to use my area, for example, like I do a lot of personal injury litigation, workers' compensation litigation, you know, um, there's a lot of people that are really traumatised through by the things that they've been through, both in terms of the circumstances of their personal injury, the impact that their personal injuries had on them, um, uh, and, and also the impact that their engagement with the legal system um, that sits around that area of the law has on them as well. And so, um, and and so that can really load lawyers up, you know. To you know, if you think that as as people, um, the circumstances in which you engage with the legal profession, it's often you know when people are going through some of the most stressful events of their life, um, you know, and uh, and and that hits those people hard. And and when lawyers are compassionate, and empathetic towards their clients, and really spend a lot of time really trying to help them, which is what we're obliged to do professionally is to, you know, act in their best interests. Um, you can take a lot of that on, and I think if that, um, and and that can really load you up with with uh, trauma over time. And in fact, that was um, interestingly, um, there was a landmark High Court case uh, just last year called Kazarov and uh, Victoria, which actually. Uh, was a case about a criminal lawyer who'd done a lot of um, uh, sexual crime prosecution, uh, who developed um, PTSD and and uh, and a serious depressive illness, um, and the High Court actually upheld the appeal in that case in finding that the the employer owed a duty to that to that lawyer to provide safe systems of work, and they they looked at. Um, the sort of things that should have been put in place that, you know, um, there needed to be a strong occupational health and safety um, uh, uh, system. Um, there needed to be a risk identification in terms of vicarious trauma, screening of the impact of vicarious trauma. But also, and I think this is really uh, important, is they recognised that there needed to be... Um, uh, a real focus on work systems and conditions, so such as things like rotation um, out of highly traumatic areas of the law and working in pairs or in groups so that you can share your experience so there's not that isolation. Um, so I think that case is probably really important in terms of, um, you know, putting the spotlight on vicarious trauma in the law. But... I think I, I again emphasise it's not just those types of obvious areas of the law that cause um, trauma, but other other areas that people might not think of more readily. 
It must be really gratifying, though, to have something like that go through the High Court, because really that now sets a precedent for for law firms and organisations and government, because it's not just private work, that to be put on notice that they really have to start thinking about the systems internally. And all of those things you're mentioning, they're all things that would be in place, you know, as a reflex in somewhere like the police, ambulance service, you know, you would have those rotations, you would have that stuff there. And you'd also have critical instant debriefing. You would have a mechanism for allowing people to talk about what they've been through, which I don't think is really a feature. I mean, imagine you day after day after day, looking at horrific amounts of, of sexual abuse material, you know, in yeah. your cases. And I know some, you know, lawyers in Victoria who have been working on some of those, those long-term cases with the church and with um, the state for, you know, up to a decade. Like, yeah. That stuff has to be lodged so deeply in the body. So yeah. interesting to me that that now has, as you say, there's a spotlight. Yeah. And I, I think, um, one of the one of the barriers, <laughs> systemic barriers to this being really dealt with, I think across all jurisdictions in Australia, is that there are some peculiar. I mean, I'm most familiar with the Tasmanian system. There there are barriers um, to uh, suing your employer. So, uh, uh, in in Tasmania, if you get injured at work including psychological injuries, um, and by psychological injuries I mean any any mental illness developed or caused by work, um, you can only sue your employer if you get what's called a whole person impairment of 20% or more. Now, that's just a, you know, that probably won't mean much to, to people listening, but I can tell you that when you look at the uh, system we have in Tasmania about how unwell you have to be mentally to get to 20% whole person impairment, you have to be really unwell and, and pretty much um, not functioning in society. And so that, that creates a real barrier, I think, to... I'm not, I'm not advocating for litigation at all costs by any means, but I think that the fact that you have that barrier to actually suing an employer means that... Um, it actually um, creates a bit of a buffer whereby you can actually have um, arguably unsafe systems of work um, going on and on without there being recourse, legal recourse um, for that. Um, so you can bring a claim in workers' compensation, but workers' compensation is a no-fault system. So as a general rule, you don't look at in workers' compensation whose fault it is. The tribunal is not interested in that. It's just about was it caused by work or not. And I think that um, cases like Kazarov are really important. And, and I think we, you know, I, I think that um, perhaps if it wasn't so hard to reach that threshold for you to be able to sue your employer, um, it would probably lead to um, maybe greater action in terms of ensuring safe systems of work than we currently have. Simon, I really want us to get into the deep juiciness of psychological injury. But just before we do, before it falls out of my mind completely, when you're training to be a lawyer at all parts of that education, is there anything in that training that talks about what it is that it actually is to be exposed to the sorts of materials that, as you say, many different branches of the law get exposed to? Is there any support or is there any part of that training that helps lawyers prepare for how they self-care? I don't think there was, I don't recall there being any when I studied. I mean, that was a fair while ago now. But um, we are 
I mean, I'm involved in this. I'm chair of the Wellbeing Committee of the Law Society, and we are working. The Law Society is is working in collaboration with people who are doing, say, the legal practice course, um, at trying to better prepare uh, early career lawyers for practice and the realities of practice. So we're starting. We're starting to try and, and get to that point, but it's a really important issue. And uh, look, it, it is. This is the other reason why I think um, uh, this is becoming really um, uh, has really come to the fore in recent years uh, in the legal profession is that we are having such a problem at the moment with attraction and retention of lawyers. I mean, we just can't keep lawyers in the profession, and that's having a really, uh, really significant impact on access to justice. But it's also having a really significant impact, not only on those lawyers that are leaving, because they're, often they're leaving because they they just don't want to be involved in legal practice for whatever reason. And I suspect a lot of those reasons would be real well-being reasons. Uh, but it's also impacting on the well-being of the lawyers that remain in the profession, because it's hard, it's hard for lawyers to um, achieve succession with their practice. You know, there's a lot of responsibility carrying a legal practice, you know, and and it's hard to get out of it, you know, if you don't have anyone to take it over, you know. And so that, there's, it's a, it causes this difficulty with um, attraction and, retrench and uh, retention is a, is a real issue. And that's another reason why uh, looking at wellbeing and the practice of the law is really becoming um, something that's getting a real lot of attention at the moment, yeah. Stats say, or what does the research say as to why people are leaving? So, are they citing those reasons? Because, I mean, the other thing you often hear is that we're educating so many lawyers that there's not enough work for them. So, I feel like in my mind, the last thing I heard was like, oh God, they're graduating too many lawyers. But from what you're saying, that's not the case. It, 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 it there was a case, uh, certainly when I, when I uh, qualified, you know, there, there would be maybe 50% of people would be able to get. Uh, a job as a practicing lawyer. Now we're in the situation where pretty much a hundred percent of people are are, are getting um, jobs um, that want them in legal practice. And the real problem now is, and I mean, my you know my my knowledge is is greatest about Tasmania. But, um, so in Tasmania, there's firms that just cannot get early career lawyers. And then we have this problem. We have a demographic cliff. Where you get to the five to seven years post admission, and the and the uh, you look at the demographic profile, there's just it, we just lose so many lawyers at that point. People are just voting with their feet, and they're just they're just going elsewhere. And and uh, you know, and so that so that is um, telling a real story that there's something's got to change. Um, in terms of why people are leaving, look, we're doing work on that right now. We've, we're doing exit surveys. We're trying to get that picture. It's it's funny, though. People, it, it can be hard to get really frank and fearless um, uh, responses to those kind of things because, you know, um, people worry about um, the confidentiality of their responses and those sort of things. So, look, we're working on that to try and better understand that. But I suspect it has a lot to do with wellbeing and lifestyle factors and that people are just taking, what while once upon a time, toughing it out and um, reaping the fruits of, you know, becoming a, a senior lawyer was seen as the, the way to go these days. You know, people are prioritising work-life balance more. Um, 
but I also suspect that you know there are elements of legal practice these days that which make it more difficult than it may have been in the past. Yeah. Well, you can't work from home in your pajamas. That's really the major issue, I'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes you can these days as long as you can put a shirt on the top <laughs> half. Well, and just make sure the angle. I, I do want the audience <laughs> to know that you have absolutely succeeded in that shirt and tie. You've gone all out for the podcast, and I'm very yeah, happy. Thank you. Let's, thank you. Let's talk about slow moving because I think that really takes us into one of the areas that I want you to to unpack, which is the slow moving nature of the law. So you're talking about it in terms of the profession and you know the agility to respond to the changing def- demographic and their needs, but. In terms of what you were saying previously about psychological injury, what that says to me, and again, I'm very open to be challenged on all of this because clearly my working knowledge of the law comes from watching a lot of law and order. Um, but But my feeling is that a lot of the laws, when they were made, particularly in relation to things like workplace injury law, we didn't know a lot about mental health then. We certainly didn't know a lot about the causes of it and the deep tentacles it has into people's capacity to continue to be productive in every sense and so we've sort of set it up to deal with things that you can drop on your foot as against things that are much more pervasive and it's it strikes me that the law in so many ways doesn't move quickly it's not something that that is adaptive to the way society changes generationally so I'd love your thoughts on that and kind of some of the systems things you're grappling with (laughs) well I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there I think that really um the understanding of mental health um, uh, and the causes of um, stress-related illness and injury has has really obviously evolved so much in recent recent decades. Um, and I think you're right. I think that there are elements of the the law and the systems that just hasn't kept pace with that. You know, so um, uh, and in terms of so there's two. My interest is has two two aspects to it. I, I'm interested in terms of the legal profession um, and 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 how it, how these issues affect uh, people's legal practice. But I'm also interested uh, from the perspective of, as a, of a workers' compensation lawyer and seeing the way those systems um, uh, intersect with people's uh, anyone, any workers who suffers a psychological injury, how how that affects them engaging with that system. In terms of the legal profession, look, I think I'll, I'll make these observations. I think being a lawyer is an inherently difficult and hard job. Like there are a lot of difficult aspects to it, and um, and I think that 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 means that um, it's always if you're going to have a busy uh, legal practice you are going to be exposed to stress. Um, and so you're never going to be able to eliminate exposure to stress if you're going to work as a lawyer, I don't think. It's going. It's more about um, managing it um, and having, um, yeah, having really good ways of managing it as best you can, so optimising the way in which you can um, look after well, your well-being and the well-being of your colleagues um, uh, in the practice of the law. Um, I think that in terms of it being slow moving and slow to adapt, though, I think there are cultural things that have meant that it's, it has been slow moving. Um, I think there has been historically elements of a culture in the profess, 
in the profession which glorify or celebrate toughing it out and doing the hard yards. Um, and um, and I think that probably until we had the, the recent skills shortage, which is prevailing now, perhaps that didn't have the, the flow-on effects in terms of um, being able to find lawyers that want to keep working for our firms, but it is now having that impact, I think. So uh, I think people are now starting to re really you know, revisit that and think about that. Is that really, is that really a, a suitable um, attitude to be having these days when we can't retain our early career lawyers? Um, I think also there's been a reluctance for for lawyers, uh, I'm speaking generally here, to admit vulnerability and disclose that practice of the law is has been impact, impacting on their mental health and well-being. I think. Um, I think there's been a, um, a culture where people fear that it will be co uh, career limiting if they if they uh, admit that they've been struggling with their mental health or that their work's getting on top of them. Um, and so I think those factors all all have meant that we we as a profession have probably been, you know, slower than some other um, professions to to deal with, um, you know, the stress related aspects of our work um, but you know I, th I as I say I think this is starting to change and you know and we really are um, you know and I'm, I'm personally and a lot of a lot of my colleagues are really trying to do work to try and uh, really shine a light on this you know for example our podcast our podcast series where we interviewed you for, for example about trauma-informed leadership you know I think that 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 is an area which is particularly relevant to uh, the legal profession. We need to get better at that. If we want to keep people healthy and happy and in the profession, we've got to get better at trauma-informed leadership. Yeah. So I'm just a totally off-piste because it's where my brain likes to go. How much do you think that the culture of law and the way firms operate. And I mean, you know, I, I guess we all, most of us would have that prevailing view that, you know, partner track, you just work and work and work, and it's all about showing how tough you are. But how much do you think, because law in and of itself is a profession that looks for a binary determination, so something is right or it's wrong, you are guilty or you're not guilty, how much of that do you think is internalised then into people that is you're either well or you're unwell you're either fit for the job or you're not fit for the job so that you don't have the capacity to be in the present in shades of grey that you know there's a sense that it's it's very much one thing or the other and that's maybe one of the things that stops people I mean this is a very long it's a long bow and I'm quite prepared to have it shot down no no I, I, I think I'd need to think about that more I mean I, I certainly think that the the win-lose um, uh, reality of much of legal practice um, certainly has a real uh, impact on people because it means, well, it has. It, there's many facets to that that impact on well-being in legal practice. Um, there's the fact that you're in an adversarial situation so frequently, but there's also the impact it has on your collegiality um, and your your sense of psychological safety in terms of you can end up uh, against your friends uh, in cases, and and those positions change all the time. So whereas in in some professions, at least you might, uh, when facing a stressful work situation, you might routinely do it within the context of the same teams and all be pushing in the same di direction and pushing for the same outcome. 
Um, often that's not the case, um, you know, in the law. And like I'm a barrister. Um, uh, if I'm in chambers with a whole lot of barristers, it, it's it's just about guaranteed we're going to be on opposite sides of a case this week and then on the same side next week, you know. And that can be a bit destabilising, I think, in terms of well-being and, you know. And, and I think... And probably something else that's really overlooked is the impact of the obligation of confidentiality on lawyers. It's really hard to um, to have uh, forums or circumstances where it's appropriate, in fact, proper to actually disclose um, uh, things that you found hard because often they're confidential and you just can't talk about them. Yeah, and I hadn't even thought of it from that perspective because everything you're saying, it really pushes up against biology right we're hardwired for connections so to never know from one case to the next from one day or week to the next if the person who the other human that you want to stay in connection with because that makes you feel safe that makes you feel that you can be in that top part of your nervous system where you can really feel like you're part of something if that's constantly getting ruptured and it's not even an inadvertent rupture it's a rupture because it has to be ruptured that is a really significant thing to hold in the body but, you know, and certainly in professions like mine where when I'm in my clinical practice, I'm required to have a supervisor to debrief with because for the same reasons that I have a confidentiality and privacy, it's recognised that you can't spend a lot of time hearing about quite graphic trauma without being able to have a place to work that through. And I really feel like there are professions that could really use those types of yeah. structures. And certainly it's the same thing with nurses and doctors. They don't necessarily have that. Some parts of the profession do, some don't. Lawyers absolutely don't and really need to. I think, you know, critically need to. And that in itself might help people stay around longer if they felt they had that level of support. Look, I really agree with that. And we've, we've actually been looking at that through the wellbeing uh, committee in terms of, uh, just looking at, at the systems, uh, the wellbeing supports that we have in place. So the traditional model is you have EAP where you can you can have your three count, free counselling sessions, which, you know, and often you can't be guaranteed it's going to be the same person you would be dealing with from one session to the next. And we're really starting to really look at that and go, well, hang on, that's just not cutting it for, for the kind of um, stresses and wellbeing challenges that people in the profession are are experiencing and so we've actually been looking at and talking to providers about starting that kind of supervision type model I mean it would always have to be voluntary but having that supervision model which I'm aware of my wife's a social worker and that's what they do as a matter of course is, yeah and and I think well, that just makes sense you know you have you set up the structures which have the confidentiality uh, in place, um, you, you have the appropriately uh, qualified and trained people to do that supervision so that um, people can actually uh, talk about what they're going through, um, get at that sense of um, collegiality and to avoid some of that isolation in the practice of the law, which is such a problem, you know, um, it really is. The other thing we're also looking at is trying to set up a kind of formal mentoring program, um, uh, particularly aimed at early career lawyers so that um, so that there is a, an avenue outside of the firm or the workplace for you to get collegiality and support so that in circumstances where um, the, the stressor might be from within the workplace or it might be in a circumstance where you're not getting what you need from your workplace you've got another avenue so that so that you know people feel more supported 
On the podcast last episode, I did an episode on attachment, which is you know, something I'm quite fascinated in. And in the early development of the nervous system, a lot of the, the reason that we as humans need to be securely attached is we need to, to learn through social experiencing what it is to have rupture and then to have repair. So we have a rupture and then the, the rupture isn't the problem. It's always that one when we see what the repair is, that's what brings our system back to co-regulated safety and it teaches us what that feels like. And it sounds to me that a lot of what happens inside the profession and also in the space in between with clients is that there's a lot of rupture but there's no opportunity for repair because of all of those things that you're saying, which, again, really sets humans up to be in situations which are incredibly hard on the nervous system and incredibly hard on the mind so you know I think this we have to look at this across a lot of different workplaces as to how do we get people to be able to feel like no matter what happens there is a place for some kind of a a repair which again involves people being vulnerable having big conversations all the things that we traditionally don't do in our workplaces and also as humans find quite hard so Mm. There's a lot of work to do. Simon, can you talk now a little bit about the the actual systems that support the workplace injury and the psychological injury stuff? Because I guess, too, I mean, we've had conversations before and you alluded to it earlier that, that there are some very significant barriers for people to be able to get a repair when they've had a workplace injury. What would it take or what will it take to be able to really move along some of those barriers to be able to represent a more contemporary understanding of what people are experiencing in many workplaces that is proving to be incredibly damaging to them? Yeah, okay. So so there's been some really uh, important uh, developments, I think, in recent years in terms of thinking around workers' compensation law, for example, uh, which is to move towards rehabilitation rather than compensation. So like in Tasmania, our, our Act is now called the Workers' Rehabilitation and Compensation Act. There's a whole part of that Act which is designed um, to really give a focus on re- rehabilitating workers back into the workplace rather than compensation as the first point you know compensation um, is more the, the last resort rather than uh, rather than the the primary objective or at least that is what the intention was um, and and I think that's a, a really good thing um, unfortunately uh, I think in practice that hasn't kind of it hasn't really eventuated to the extent that probably the drafters of those amendments to our laws had intended. Um, and I think, and and particularly psychological injury and the way in which psychological injury is dealt with under our workers' compensation system is particularly problematic in terms of care of and looking after people's mental health. So um, to state the obvious, when someone um, uh, makes a claim for workers' compensation for a psychological injury, usually... The fact that they have a mental illness and are unwell and 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 usually not well enough to be at work at least for a period of time isn't in dispute. Usually that's not what's in dispute. So your starting point is you've got someone that most in most cases everyone agrees is unwell. Now what comes with that being unwell? That person has a reduced capacity or tolerance for stress. Um, they're not operating at their, their best um, and 
as an interface with the world, someone with a mental illness is it, it is it affects every aspect of the way someone uh, their interface with the world. So you, you can't get a, you can't get away from it. So in in that sense, I think it's to a certain extent different to a lot of physical injuries. Yeah. Um, now, what what is particularly problematic um, in Australia, I think, with the or causes problems with psychological injuries is that there is a concept or a carve out or exception from liability for what are called reasonable management actions. So this, there's this legal um, um, concept that um, or policy that sits behind our laws, which is where someone develops um, a workplace psychological injury as a result of a reasonable management action, you're not entitled to compensation. The thinking behind that is that employers have got to be able to um, terminate people's employment if they've acted inappropriately. They've got to be able to choose who they're going to promote and who they're not going to promote, choose to be able to transfer people in appropriate circumstances to counsel people, to performance manage people, those sort of things. And so the, the law is that where a psychological injury think mental illness arises as a result of a reasonable management action, you don't get compensation. Now that, uh, you know, that, and that, that has a, a rational policy basis. Unfortunately, the impact that that has um, in the workers' compensation system in terms of uh, psychological injuries is that there tends to be, I would say, a majority and probably a vast majority of of psychological injury claims which get disputed because um, it will be claimed that a significant contributing factor to the to that psychological injury is a reasonable uh, management action. So, um, and and it's also this is another problem. It, it, it's often uh, leads to a sort of an oversimplification of the circumstances which lead to. Uh, someone being mentally unwell. Um, and I don't need to explain to you, you'd be able to explain to me much better <laughs> about, about all of the things that would lead to someone becoming unwell. But what that means is that when, when someone with a psychological injury um, makes a claim for compensation, they invariably, um, unless it's a, an obvious, um, uh, what you'd call primary trauma type injury where someone's been exposed to a really big incident like you know which is clearly there's no dispute what's caused it and someone's developed an acute traumatic response other than that where it's a just a stress related I, I mean just I mean I don't mean that as, yeah. as placing a value on it but where there's a stress related injury that doesn't arise from those circumstances invariably there'll be a dispute about liability on the basis that um, it'll be claimed that a, a substantial cause, the most substantial cause of that is uh, a reasonable management action. Not always, but but I think in, in probably the vast majority of cases. Now, what what I what what my difficulty with that is is what it actually then does to the worker. So you've got that injured worker who is who's just got who's unwell. Everyone everyone agrees that the worker's unwell. Um, that they have a, um, you know, a, a inhibited or, or a much, um, you know, poor, poor ability to tolerate stress. And what then happens is they then get their case disputed. 
often their workers' compensation will then be stopped um, um, uh, shortly afterwards. Um, but but before that happens, what will often happen is they'll be served with what's called a reasonably arguable case um, uh, notice, which will include um, evidence that um, on on behalf of the employer and the insurer as to why it said that this this person's injury doesn't result from work, or if it does result from work, it results from a reasonable management action type of situation. Now, what what that does invariably is make that makes that person much worse, and 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 often I've seen leads that person to end up in a situation where they become chronically unwell and the prospect of them returning to work um, at least with the original employer but often with any employer for a at least the short to medium term is just basically completely out of the question because that um, the impact of that system and that process has such a dramatic impact on them. Um, so the things that I often see is, is that someone, well, I think I think first of all I'd say, for a lot of people, their work is their legitimate way of being. It's how they, it's a, it's a, it's a significant part of their identity. It's often the source of a lot of their friendships um, and and significant relationships and a lot of their significant social social interaction. So, uh, what typically happens when a case is disputed, um, or leading up to a case being disputed, is that um, is that colleagues will be told not to make contact with the worker because we're entering into a legal type of scenario. So often the worker will then suddenly find themselves feeling isolated because they're suddenly not, yeah, no one's ringing them to see if they're all right. Um, the people that they're used to spending time with, you know, for 40 hours a, a week, for example, um, so they start feeling isolated. Then they might end up, um, as often happens, with being served with a whole lot of documents, which include statements that have been prepared, which by their friends and colleagues um, about them, yeah, and saying, you know, why it is that, you know, you know, why what what was done in the circumstance that led to the injury was reasonable and was fair and 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 justified in the circumstances. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. It, that any, there's anything particularly wrong with that. If that's the legal system, that makes sense that people have got to make their cases about it. But the the impact that this has on workers, it's just pulling the rug out from un, under them. And, you know, I, I often refer to it as destroying minds because it takes an injured person, an unwell person, and just makes them 10 times worse. And, and it's led me to really question... Um, whether there's just got to be a better way of doing things like this, because it's it's almost I'd almost describe it as almost systemic negligence towards people with a mental illness, and and it's all and the 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 reason it's happening is because of this focus on the cause of the mental illness, not whether or not there is a mental illness. We we end up with this extreme focus on the minutia of the circumstances that led to the injury, uh, rather than on a focus on how to get that worker back um, and better again and back into the workplace and support them well. And so, yeah, so that in a nutshell is is is, is the problem as I see it. Yeah, God, it's a hideous nutshell. And I, I always find that isolation piece is so distressing because it's as you say, 
everything that we need as humans gets taken away. So not only are you unwell, but you're then isolated and your friends are often turned against you. And what that does to a human is, you know, it, it is absolute seeds of destruction. So it's it's a very poor system. I'd love to say I have a lot of hope for it turning around quickly, but I feel as though that there's not a huge incentive to make it more humane. And the reality is, as you say, if it was rehabilitation and it was much more around getting the worker back. Simon, what's, what are the statistics? I feel like you told me that there was a statistic around the length of time between that someone's off and that they will never come back to work and when, if they get they get looked after, they'll get back into the workforce. It's like six weeks or something like that. Did I make that up? No, I don't. I, well, I'm not. I'm not aware of the statistics around that, so I wouldn't have been would have said that. But um, I, I, I think in terms of holding out hope for this to change, I, I actually think that now that we're in this current situation of skill shortage and uh, and the real need for people to be in the workplace, um, I really think the time is is actually right for a, re, a revisiting of this because I think it's I, I think there really are good um, rational reasons that where where you can really say everyone would benefit from a change in this system because I really really believe that a lot of these people um, that end up out of the workforce for a long time due to um, the perpetuation of mental illness due in large part to uh, the impact that uh, interacting with the medico-legal system has on them. Um, these people could, could be back in the workplace quickly and it could be just a temporary, you know, ephemeral thing, that bad part of their life and, and they get, get on with life if, if the right trauma-informed uh, responses were employed. And, and that would benefit insurers, employers and the worker. Everyone benefits. Society benefits. We can't afford these days to have these really valuable workers out of out of action and not contributing to society for such a long period of time um, um, because of uh, exposure to a system where the outcomes are so predictable. It's so predictable that they're going to end up unwell for long term, long term if they're exposed to this situation. And it's not even. I, I don't. I don't lay the blame on the insurers for disputing claims. I mean, they are operating in a system where if they don't dispute within eighty, this is a Tasmania system, for example. If they don't dispute a case within an eighty-four days. They miss the opportunity to do that, and then it's much harder for them um, to then um, um, succeed with a dispute. So, so it's forcing their hand in a way. If you've only got 84 days, what do you, where are you going to deploy your effort? Are you going to deploy your effort in trying to rehabilitate that worker? Or are you just going to go, well, we'll dispute first uh, and, then we'll, and then we'll work out what we're going to do? But, you know, after 84 days, it's too late. In a lot of cases, the damage has been done. And so one of the things I really wonder is whether there, there couldn't be a, a system where either the parties can agree to... Um, uh, agree to a essentially a delaying of that time limit, and and you actually have a mechanism built into the legislation where the parties consent to the tribunal ordering that there is a six month rehabilitation and support period that is to be trialed first, and then 
you can then look at disputing after that if you can't get the worker back into work. So then the whole idea around that is to basically throw the whole trauma-informed approach at that person, uh, support that person and do all the things that humans would expect and need when they're unwell and, and see what percentage of people are actually back at work and you never, and never look back. I think it would be a high proportion. There are, of course, but, you know, people will always say there are people that are, you know, making claims for the wrong reasons or that they're not actually unwell or, or the reason they're unwell is for personal reasons, not work reasons. Well, whatever. But I think that the, it's worth, it's worth having such mechanisms so that, because I think for a lot of people it would make a big difference. And then insurers aren't paying compensation. Employers get their workers back. Yeah. Everyone wins, Simon. It's been a big episode. We've covered a lot of material, but I'm very happy that we've we've ended on a, a tiny ray of hope. You've heard it here first. Simon Gates in real time rewriting Tasmanian workers' compensation law. <laughs> Simon, thank you so much. I really appreciate the generosity of your time. I could stay on this topic for about another five hours, but you know, that's not the done thing with podcasts. So we will leave it here and I hope that I will get to speak to you on this matter another time. Simon Gates, thank you so much. Thank you, Polly. If you've been listening to Polly's Vague Theories long enough to maybe become indoctrinated by my deep love of all things therapy, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Polly, where do I start? It's a big, complex world out there. I don't know my psychiatrist from my psychotherapist. Do not worry, friend. I got you. It can be complicated. So I've created an audio course for you that really steps out all of the different things you need to know when starting on your therapy journey. Who's who in the zoo? What do you do? What does an intake session look like? What are some of the things you need to ask your therapist? What are some of the red flags you might be looking out for? What's your responsibility and your part and what is theirs? And even that big, often unspoken question, how do I break up with a therapist if the relationship is not working? All covered for you if you want to grab a copy of the course. It's $19.95 Australian, priced to hopefully fit into nearly everyone's pocketbook. Head to the website www.pollymcgee.com and you can grab it under the therapy link. If you're really desperate to get your hands on a copy but that feels like it might be out of your reach, send me a little message through the contact page and I will sort you out. Oh yes, my friends, another episode wrapped and regulated series two, loving it sick. If you would like me to record an episode on something of interest to you relating to the nervous system, theory, therapy, trauma, popular culture, whatever it is that floats your boat, let's have those boats rise together. Head to the website, pollymcgee.com and click in the top right hand corner. There it is, an email coming straight to me anonymously saying what you'd like to hear about. Or if you'd like to be interviewed by me or have someone you want me to talk to, all good, you just let me know. Until next episode, stay right at the top of your ladder, loved and connected, seen and known. Thanks for your company. See you next time. Bye.